I'm Edit Chakraborty and welcome to a special edition of The Business. Coming up, I'll be discussing money, inequality and avarice with a panel of experts and asking, does it really matter if the rich are getting richer? Can Gordon Brown or Barack Obama do anything to close the wealth gap? Or does the credit crunch mean we've reached a tipping point in the age of greed? This is The Business from The Guardian. Our panel this week comes from far and wide, but they're more closely related than you might think. Polly Toynbee is a columnist for The Guardian and co-author of a book on inequality. Inequality is also a favourite subject of Robert Frank, who's Professor of Economics at Cornell University. Aditya, nice to be here. Larry Elliott's our economics editor. And Larry, you've reviewed one of Robert's books. I think a long time ago, a luxury fee. Yes, I enjoyed it very much. And he was also one of your fancy economists, wasn't he? He was, yeah. He was on my team. And finally, Richard Reeves is director of the think tank Demos. But back in the day, Richard, you were Larry Elliott's trainee. <laughs> That's exactly right. Did he treat you mean? It's good to be back. He's <laughs> never recovered. Talk about inequality. <laughs> Now, one consequence of the worldwide financial meltdown has been to shine a spotlight on the lives of the super rich. The city slickers, banking CEOs and hedge funders who thought nothing of spending a million dollars to redecorate their private offices or reward themselves with extravagant bonuses for running their companies into the ground. The Wall Street Journal's Robert Frank documented the lives of America's financial elite in his book Richistan, in which he outlined how the uber-wealthy lived in a world entirely separate from ordinary Americans. I asked him what life was like in Richistan. The top 1% of Americans controlled $17 trillion in wealth during the mid-2000s. And just for perspective, that's greater than the combined GDPs of Japan, Germany, France, and Britain. So they were wealthier than most countries. Some of the people I interviewed had household staffs of more than 100 people. So that's 100 people working in their house which is more than some companies employ. And they were increasingly using their own jets to fly around. They had private doctors creating their own private healthcare system. So they had been able to financially remove themselves from the rest of America. The wealthy were building yachts that were more than 100 meters long during the boom times. And you've got someone like Roman Abramovich building a yacht that's Uh, close to 150 meters long. You had people buying jumbo jets to use as private jets. You had people building houses that were more than 10,000 square meters. I mean, these were like hotels, but they were actually private homes. And we had never seen in this country or elsewhere a level of conspicuous consumption like we saw during the 2000s. Robert Frank there, online from New York. We'll hear more from him later, but back here in the studio we have Professor Robert H. Frank, as well as Polly Toynbee, Larry Elliott and Richard Reeves. Robert, what we heard there was the view from the top of the mountain. What's happened to the average American family's income? Yeah, I think everybody's feeling insecure right now. Uh, The unemployment rate in the U.S. is 9.4%. Still, that means 90% plus have jobs. The people who have jobs are worried. They're not spending as much. There's a lot of uncertainty in, in the climate now. But there are recently encouraging signs that the recession is beginning to ebb. And Paul Krugman yesterday predicted that we might see growth again by September of this year. This is a short-run phenomenon. I think the interesting question is what happens once the trajectory that we've been on picks up again. Okay, and give us that long-run trajectory then. What's been going on to incomes since the 70s, say? Virtually all the significant gains in income that we've seen since the early 70s have come at the top. 
And that's, I think, a, consequences, a consequence of the fact that markets have become much more competitive during that period. As competition increases, that's the general finding. We see incomes concentrating at the top. And Polly, what does it look like in Britain? What does inequality look like over here? Well, we've had shocking recent figures where we thought we'd just about held inequality steady during the, the Labour decade, but it turns out not to be the case. And when you look at what's happened, although Gordon Brown has been boasting of the longest period of GDP growth uh, in living memory and so on, all of that growth has been at the top. Uh, you know, 80% of people have seen virtually no change. The bottom 30% have fallen behind in real terms, really fallen behind. And nearly all of the growth was in the top. And it raises the question, which you know I'd love to ask, is why do we measure GDP as a measure of how each individual country is going when it makes a huge amount of difference, whether you're talking about it in Sweden, where it's equally dis- more evenly distributed, or you're talking about it in Britain or America, where it's so unevenly distributed as to be a meaningless figure. It's, a, it's an empty average. Robert talked about how this was down to structural changes in the economy. Do you see a kind of political tinge here? Does it make a difference whether there's Tories in power or Labour in power? I think you'd say that things would have got considerably more unequal if Labour hadn't been in power. When you look at the graph, it may look fairly steady, but I think there would have been an even greater upward jag if you'd had a Conservative party in power that had no intention of redistributing. But I think you'd also say that Labour has been phenomenally cowardly in not carrying out its good intentions. It did want to abolish child poverty, has failed miserably. It did want to redistribute. And as we've seen, you know, the rich soar away in Gordon Brown's era as Chancellor uh, more than in any other era before it. Uh, Astronomical wealth has been sucked upwards from the bottom to the top. Now, time was when we knew where we stood with the class system here in Britain. And the socio-economic positions of the upper, middle and working classes can probably best be summed up by this 1960 sketch from the Frost Report. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class. I look up to them both. Richard, doesn't that sketch show that twas ever thus? We've always had a class system. There's there's nothing particularly new about this, is there? Well, people have always been concerned about their status. It's just a question of what you use to measure your status, whether that's money or what school you went to or how many books you've read or how good you are at sport or, in the old days, how good you were at killing people. Um, so I think we are kind of status-prone uh, creatures. When we start talking about equality, we have to be quite careful, I think. We have to be, very, we have to be careful what, what kind of equality we're talking about. Everyone's in favour of equality, just disagree about equality of what. And I think we need to make a big distinction here between income and wealth, for one thing. Uh, and then when we do talk about income inequalities, let's talk about income inequality to start with, we have to say, well, what's our measure? Because Polly's quite right, on some measures Labour hasn't done very well, but on other measures it's done pretty well. Um, what pulls up the level of inequality is precisely this group at the top, the super rich, the 1%. And then if you look within the 1%, it's the 0.1% within the 1% who really pull it up. Whereas the gap between someone 10% of the way up the income distribution and someone 10% of the way down from the top, that gap has remained absolutely static throughout Labour's period. So then it's a question of, well, how much do you care about different kinds of equality? And in particular, how much do we care about the super rich? My view is that the left should worry a lot more about the super poor and worry a bit less about the super rich. Larry, what do you make of that argument? I think there's something to be said for it. I mean, Richard's right that if if you look at the, the, the bit between 10 and 90% Labour's policy has been mildly 
redistributive. I mean, the, 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 the people between 10, 20, 30, those sort of people have actually done better than the people in 70, 80, 90 bracket. And it is, it is the people at the very top, the, the really the elite, which has pulled, pulled, pulled the inequality gap up. And that will probably go down for a couple of years now because of the recession, if traditionally recessions are good for equality because it, it, it tends to hit the incomes of the very rich more than it does the incomes of the poor who, who carry on getting their state benefits. So the recession will be, will be actually quite good for, it, for, for inequality in a perverse way. The interesting thing is why the incomes of the very rich have gone up as much as they have. And I can see why the incomes of some members of the rich would be going up, why David Beckham's salary would be going up or a top basketball player, because, you know, the, the new technological age means that you can put them on TV anywhere in the world and they are much more marketable. I can't really see why the salary of a CEO, for example, has gone up so much relative to the average wage unless unless the CEOs are much better than they were 25 years ago, which I think there's you know, scant evidence of. I think there, 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 is, there is an element in which CEOs have, have actually surfed a wave of, of, of higher salaries for a, a group for whom it is justified. And for them, I, I don't think it is justified. And Robert, you've talked about how the rich running away with extra wealth has affected other people. You talk about something called the Aspen effect. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I want to say first, I agree with Richard that people don't care much about what the super rich consume. They're, they're not offended by it, typically. If, if anything, they take an interest in it. They want to see pictures of the mansions and the jets. That doesn't mean that their consumption levels don't matter, though. I think you need to uh, examine the effect of what I've called the expenditure cascade that's launched by the higher spending of the rich. The rich have a lot more money. Uh, What do they do? They do what everybody does. They spend it. When I see the mansion, I'm not offended. Uh, there, there is, however, a circle of people who rub elbows with the very rich just below them. Uh, maybe now it's the custom for having your daughter's wedding reception at home, not in a hotel or a club. And so the people at the top have built bigger. Now the people just below them build bigger as well. They rub elbows with a group just below them. They build bigger. And you get a cascade one step at a time all the way down the income ladder. So if you look at the U.K., now the median new house built in the UK is substantially larger than it was 30 years ago. Not because the median earner earns more. That's not the, the reason. Median earnings haven't gone up much during that period. It's because of this cascade. So it, it's the indirect effects of the spending at the top that I think that have made matters more expensive for people in the middle. And you could say, well, then just don't buy as big a house if you can't afford it. But uh, the rub there is the school catchment areas tend to track house prices. If, you want to, if you're an average earner and you don't spend as much as the average for your area on a house, your kids will go to below average schools. So it's a dilemma, really. If everybody bids more for housing, there's still only half the schools in the top half. Uh, you just bi- end up bidding up the prices of those houses. So there you go, Richard. It does affect the rest of us because it means that middle class people end up living in shoe boxes in good catchment areas just to get their kids into good schools. Okay, well, it seems to me you don't solve your education policy problems through a housing policy or a consumption tax. I mean, there are other ways of dealing with that problem. Um, and I would, of course, uh, argue for you know, greater school choice and allow parents to, if particularly if you give more money to poorer kids. But, but that, it, that's you're not going to change the number of schools there but, are, but are it, you? That's a very specific problem. And it's a, it's a real problem here, too, with the kind of buying your way into state schools. And it's what kind of centre-left middle-class people do. Is they tend to kind of just buy expensive houses because then they don't have to send their kids to private schools. Um, but it's very, very difficult, I think, to kind of run a whole economy or a housing 
housing uh, policy on the basis of your education problem. And there's a broader issue here, which is I think some of these effects that Robert Frank talks about are real. And actually, when I look at some of the, the way these people kind of live, I, I think that's extraordinary. You know, how can you possibly need that many houses? And if I'm honest about it, I probably feel a bit envious, actually. And I probably think, like Larry, they don't deserve that money. I'm just as clever as them. How come I don't earn a gazillion, million, trillion, right? But the difference is this. I don't then feel I can use the state to kind of operationalise my feelings about that. I think some of the amounts of money they've got are sort of ridiculous. Unless we can prove that there's a systematic market failure... Then, what we've then, had, cataclysmic market failure. Sure, but I mean in the labour market... Due to the bonuses people have paid uh, well, themselves that, is, for is, reckless, is, it, is it definitely because of that? Are we sure it's that? Are we sure it's the bonuses that caused that? And it's not the regulatory architecture, and it's not the, it's not I, the I, way... I, 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 think, I, think, I don't think you can blame the super-rich for the credit crunch, and that's the problem with the argument, because we, we'd like to blame the super-rich for everything. Poor health, stress envy, educational disadvantage, mm. and we've got this lovely group, and they're, they're handily quite small, and usually they don't include us, right. although quite often we're not that far below, uh, and that we can sort of heap all the ills of society on them, and that's, that's implausible. There is a wonderful book, and I, I'm particularly pleased with Professor Frank's work, because it fills in a gap. There's a wonderful book that's just come out here called The Spirit Level by uh, Wilkinson and Pickett, which looks right across the world at the different stages of health and happiness of countries across the world and the clusterings are fascinating and the countries that are more equal whether they're richer or poorer countries do better on every well-being index but he never really quite explained the transmission mechanism which I think Professor Frank's work does explain exactly why it does harm to others, the cascade effect that he talked about. I mean, Wilkinson talks about, in terms of sort of monkeys as social animals, that there's a pecking order, and the people at the bottom of any pecking order or the animals at the bottom of a pecking order suffer terribly, and they get heart disease, they get terrible things, uh, and, and if you move them around their social order, they then recover. Pecking orders matter, and the flatter the uh, hierarchy happier people are. Larry, what do you make of your former trainees' argument? I was going to say really about the market failure argument that, let's just use an example here which is that if these, if the salaries of the super rich were really working in an economic sense, you would imagine that after the enormous market failure there's been, there would be a new cadre of chief executives waiting to fill their shoes because you know the, the salaries should bring forth a supply of new CEOs. And yet we've seen this week that Andy Hormey, the guy that used to run HBOS, a famously failed bank, has now been recycled into running another top PLC, which seems to me to suggest that there isn't this great group of people. There hasn't been this great surge of economic activity just below the, below the top. It's just a, a, a self-appointed oligarchy who are actually paying themselves unjustified sums of money. I think, just going back to Polly's point, I think there is, there is a wider point here, I think which is right to sort of widen it out beyond education. You know, does, does this, the idea that I need a, you know, house twice the size that my parents have make me twice as happy or even as happy as my parents does the fact that we're now now consuming at a much higher level actually make us happier as a society that seems to me to be quite a, quite an interesting and important point you know if 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 i have to have a you know a much bigger car because my next door neighbor's got a much bigger car which seems to be the trend is that actually a very a very good use of resources that does it make us a happier society that's that's the interesting point i think Okay, well, let's come on to what should be done, because it's traditionally said that the poor will always be with us. I mean, there's there's the same applied to the super rich. We'll get the thoughts of each of you in the studio in just a moment. But first, back to Robert Frank in New York. It's certainly been a more dramatic fall for the wealthy than we have seen probably since the Great Depression. What we don't know is whether that will come back 
and how quickly it will come back. We don't know whether 2005, 2007, whether that period was, quote, normal or what the new normal will be. However, we, we have seen in the last few weeks the stock market return quite dramatically to fairly decent levels. We've seen an increase in 30% in the U.S. Uh, stock market. Some of the wealthy are, and the non-wealthy are, are making money right now. And so it could appear that the wealthy may be back with us on the same scale as they were fairly quickly, and this, this could be a bump in the road for them. On the other hand, this could be a, a more longer-lasting dramatic crisis where this period of the turn of the century and the wealth may be viewed as a second Gilded Age that won't come back for another 100, to be, 100 years or so. And we just don't know the answer to that because it depends on how long this crisis drags out and how much wealth the wealthy continue losing. There you go, Polly Toynbee. The market sorted it all out. The super rich have lost all their money and now we're back to where we were. I don't. They may feel they've lost all their money, but if you're Roman Abramovich and you, you know, you've lost, you've lost a billion or so, uh, your lifestyle hasn't actually changed at all. Uh, it's from the outside, it all looks much the same, and the big gap, uh, the big gaps really remain. Uh, certainly in this country, and no sign whatever that we're going to uh, that we have any policies at all for lessening those gaps, for making sure that future growth is more evenly shared than it has been in the last decade. Robert, what do you see from from American perspective? I mean, how much do you think's changed forever as a result of the last two years? The inequality did accelerate the last couple of years. The investment bankers almost had a license to print money uh, as they were making their mortgage-backed securities and then issuing credit default swaps and the like. Uh, that's not going to happen again in the financial industry. Uh, if you look back a little further, the, the trend toward rising inequality was evident well before the financial excesses took root in the last decade. It's true you can find vivid examples of cases where a CEO really seemed to be stealing money from shareholders, but I think the, the general trend is really much more to do with the fact that as the market has become more competitive, performance just matters more than it used to. So if you think about a, a, a big firm, IBM has annual profits of about $10 billion. They're looking for a new CEO. They've got a couple of candidates who look promising. One's a little bit better, the board agrees, than the others. Uh, what does that mean, first of all? There's the psychologist concept of a just noticeable difference. You can't even tell one's better than the other unless he's 3% better or 4% better. You wouldn't have an opinion otherwise. So suppose he's 3% better. Uh, running a $10 billion company, that's $300 million net on the bottom line as a result of hiring the better of the two candidates at the top of your list. So I think... There's so much leverage in these top positions and so much competition for the, the best performers. It's a crapshoot. Obviously, you don't know who's going to perform well in a specific environment. But I think un unless companies lose their nerve and quit placing bets, we're going to see a lot, lot more inequality of the sort we were seeing before the, the banking crisis. No fundamental change of attitude. That's the trouble. Exactly what Larry was talking about. Andy Hornby being rehired. Uh, everything. Everybody sort of held their breath for a few months and waiting to continue as before. What about among politicians? 
Labour failed to seize the moment. There was a semi-revolutionary moment of rage about bonuses of what had happened, people losing their houses, losing their jobs at 100,000 a month. And somehow uh, Labour has fumbled it and utterly failed to say, right, now's the time for really serious reform and thinking again and opening the big debate about how we want to share things in future. And uh, no sign of it. Well, let's come to you, Richard, because what you outlined at the beginning of the programme was something that was pretty much new new Labour standard rhetoric. Don't worry about those at the top, just worry about those at the bottom of the poll, sort them out and the rest will sort itself out. Don't you think that's all now changed? God, I I really hope it wasn't new Labour rhetoric because I passionately care about poverty at the bottom and wealth inequality and the fact that the bottom 50% of the income distribution now only have 1% uh, of the liquid wealth of this country compared to 11% 20 years ago. Wealth inequality really makes me angry because that, I think, is specific. It, it means you, you, it's harder to survive the knocks. It gives you more power and more independence. There's a reason you use the phrase independently wealthy. So wealth inequality, I worry much more about that than income inequality. And I think it's much harder to operationalise government action in the labour market. I also think that if a recession can improve all these figures, if actually it's true, and I think Larry's right about this, actually a couple of years of decent recession will actually improve income inequality, you've got to worry slightly about how good those measures are, whether that really should be the lodestar that I think Polly and others make it. And the third thing I would, I would say is, I think a lot of these points are interesting about well-being and, and uh, you know, consumption and so on. But to operationalise it, we should be looking at people like us. Because if I read Robert Frank correctly, what he's saying is it's kind of the affluent who are affected by the super affluent. Because we're kind of close to them. We, we sort of may, may even know some of them. We see them. So actually, they're, they're affecting our consumption. I'm willing to bet, if you go around this table, there aren't many people here who will admit to having bought a bigger car because their neighbour did, or a bigger house because their neighbour did, or a bigger jet because their neighbour did. So two possibilities present themselves. Either we are somehow morally superior to everybody else and we need to legislate for them or actually we should just stay out of this altogether there you go larry we're all at it we're all scaling up our aspirations according to what we see around us um i suppose nothing will ever change well i think to an extent we're always going to have inequality because we are unequal people are not equal and so you know there's a limit to what you can do traditionally though governments you know certainly over the last 150 years have seen the need to try and take the edge off inequality that they've I mean Lester Thoreau said this in one of his books that actually there's something incompatible with democracy and very high levels of inequality and that that's why we've had things like progressive income tax that's why we've had welfare states and the GI bill in the in the US and so on and so forth in an attempt by governments to 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 actually take the edge off inequality and I think that is an important insight and something that governments need to continue to do because Richard's right wealth inequality is more serious than income inequality but income inequality actually hardens into wealth equality if you leave it for long enough um, and to an extent there is a there is there is a limit to what governments can do certainly and it depends really largely on the culture of this particular society so it's it's much easier for a for a country like Sweden or Germany or France to have uh, societies where you entrench policies which attack inequality is in an Anglo-Saxon economy. I mean, I don't, I don't think we would wear the same sort of policies that they would accept as normal in France and Germany, where, for example, CEOs earn much smaller multiples of the average wage. But that's, that's, that's a cultural norm, and it's not something that you can just decree from the centre. I mean, if Gordon Brown said tomorrow we will have you know, a 10%, a 10% gap between the top paid and the, and the bottom paid, it, it just wouldn't work. It's, it's, you know, it has to go with the grain of, of, of a culture, and, and I'm not sure that we are, we are really ready for that in, in Britain or, or the US at this time. Robert Frank, I feel the last word should go to you. At the moment in America, pays very high up on the agenda that's talked about. Taxing bonuses uh, at punitive rates. 
where does all that sort of rhetoric leave the, the American dream? I mean, is Larry's point that you can't get political change without cultural change, isn't that being slightly disproved by what we've seen since Obama took power? I think there are some very interesting possibilities on the table. Uh, the, the inefficiency that dominates all others in the economy is the, the way we spend. So suppose you're a rich person and you want to have a special occasion for your daughter's coming-of-age party. How much do you need to spend? Uh, one American CEO recently hosted a party for his daughter that he spent $10 million on. That's a lot of money. Uh, I don't think he was a bad person. He just wanted to have a special occasion. In his circle, that's what it took. Uh, I was going to my office last month and saw a clown getting out of her car, uh, dressed up in a clown costume, going into one of the NYU apartment buildings. I've been on sabbatical at NYU this year. And I wonder, what's she doing uh, there? I said, oh, a professor's kid must be having a birthday. And now what it means is that uh, because of the standard that's been set at the top and that is filtered down one step at a time, if you don't have a professional clown or magician come to your 10-year-old's birthday party, the, the children feel it's not a special occasion. These aren't bad people. Uh, there are they just, just want to standards. keep up the Dow Joneses. Is that, is that what Exactly. There's, there are standards in every country. I, I lived in Nepal for two years. Uh, if I still lived there, I'd be spending much less next in the next months as I shop for a gift for my 25th wedding anniversary than I'll be spending now. The, the context shapes what you have to spend. Even the Maoists in Nepal now wear designer suits. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well that's us done for this special edition of the show. To give your feedback on anything you've heard, post a comment on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash thebusiness. My thanks to the panel, Polly Toynbee and Larry Elliott from Guardian Towers, Richard Reeves from Demos and Professor Robert Frank from the USA. Robert's new book, The Return of the Economic Naturalist, is published by Virgin and is out now. Our producer's Ben Green, I'm Edith Chakraborty, and that was the business. <laughs>